we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. And today we're going to be talking about something that Congress did on immigration relatively recently, which is kind of unusual because almost everything on immigration policy now is done by the executive branch because Congress has abdicated most of its responsibilities. But with regard to the EB-5 investor visa program, this is where you essentially can buy a green card by investing in a U.S. project that's approved by the government, but isn't, you don't actually give the money to the government. And it has been riddled with fraud. And even without the fraud, it's full of gimmicks that completely undercut whatever rationale there was for it. And there's been some changes made in Congress to it. And I thought it would be useful to have two people on our staff who are experts on this issue. In fact, probably are the two people who know more about this issue without actually making any money off it in the whole country. Because there are a lot of people who know a lot about how this EB-5 investor visa works, but they're all people who are, you know, making money off the program one way or another. Our two guests are George Fishman, a legal fellow here at the center, longtime expert on immigration policy, both on Capitol Hill and in the administration. And he wrote a recent piece on the history, sort of tracing the history of this program and what the recent reform would do. And we're also joined by David North, who's been writing about this issue for a long time, following all the various ins and outs, the frauds and prosecutions and what have you related to this crooked racket. And so I thought it would be worth going over the program. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. And I think we'll start with George, because your piece that's on our website at cis.org called Reforming the EB-5 Investor Green Card Program, colon, The Agony and the Ecstasy. George had to come up with a little interesting twist on it. I have to say it's probably more agony than ecstasy uh, regardless. But if you could just kind of give us a quick overview of how we got to where we got and then what happened recently in Congress to fix at least some of the problems. Mark, thank you so much, and thank you for having me again on the podcast. The whole thing started in 1990. This was a provision in the Big Immigration Act of 1990. And I mean, there was a lot of controversy then. As you indicated, there were allegations that it was simply selling green cards. The program, as originally created, foreign investors invest a million dollars in setting up their own business managing, running their own business. And if they do that and they create 10 jobs, after a few years, they get a green card. It was designed to bring investment capital to the U.S. And it was specifically designed by Congress to bring investment capital to rural areas and to depressed high unemployment areas. And there were 
incentives in the program for investing in those areas. The principal incentive was that investors were allowed to invest a lower amount of money if they were investing in projects in rural or depressed areas. And what the agency came up with was $500,000. So this was 1990, a million dollars generally. If, if, you, get, you, if you started your own business or yeah, this was yeah, the- Yeah, right. you have to start your own business. And if you do it in a depressed or rural area, $500,000. To some extent, the original program was sold and actually had provisions in it that it was equally an entrepreneur program as well as an investor program because you had to start a business generally and you had to run it. And Senator Phil Graham on the Senate floor talked about, you know, we're bringing entrepreneurs here. They have all this money because they've been successful businessmen. We want them here because they're successful businessmen or businesswomen. It turns out that not many people used the program in the first few years. And two years later in 1992, Congress decided to make it more sellable internationally. And so it created the Regional Center Pilot Project, which has since then become, you know, 95% of the entire investor visa program in which essentially you can be a limited partner in a pooled investment. You don't need to be an entrepreneur anymore. Essentially, you simply have to invest the money. Say a developer is building a condo or a mixed-use development somewhere, needs millions and millions of dollars in capital. This is a way to get some of that capital. People will invest in that project. And it's still supposed to create 10 jobs, right? Each investment. Is is supposed to create 10 jobs or not? Each investment is supposed to create 10 jobs, but the way Congress drafted it in 1992, you don't have to like, hey, here's a W-2 of a worker who got a job, you know, because of this program. You can provide an economic study to the government saying, hey, by this formula, this project is going to create such and such number of jobs. Basically, you can make it up. I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, it's not quite totally made up. You have to make it up in a way that looks like you didn't make it up, but- Econometric studies. Yes, exactly. The The best econometric studies lobbyist money can buy, in other words. But in terms of what sent the program down the really wrong path, in my perspective, was the way the then Immigration and Naturalization Service structured it. Essentially, anyone, even- a big developer in, in Manhattan putting together a ultra-luxury condominium, or I, I guess it's co-op in New York City, not right. condominium project, can claim, oh, this is in a depressed, high unemployment area, and therefore I can go overseas and uh, attract investors at the half-million-dollar level, even though, you know, again, it's midtown Manhattan, and the way they've done that— I wanted to ask oh, David about that, actually. Sure. Essentially, gerrymandering is what George is talking about here. And can you tell us a little bit about how these regional centers and the investors, how they game this idea of putting the investment in a depressed area? How do they gerrymander it? How do they draw the lines to make this legal? Well, first, the Congress set up a standard, and the standard was that you have to put together a targeted employment area, TEA, with 150% unemployment rates compared to the the national average. So you had to have 50% more unemployment in this area to allow these uh, EB-5 investments. Right. Well, the areas are composed of census tracts. 
census tract is a varying population depending on big cities or, or small towns, but it's about the size of two or three voting precincts, something like that. But they allowed the proposers to draw very imaginative targeted employment areas. But one of my favorite one is there was a building on Wall Street. They were building a new building on Wall Street, which is a prosperous area, needless to say. But to get it to meet the federal standards, they drew a line across the East River into Brooklyn and then patched together several census tracts until some 10 miles or so from Wall Street when they found a housing project with lots and lots of unemployment. So because of the peculiar nature of the district, they were able to claim that this district had 150% of the nation's unemployment rate. Right. And that's been done time and time again. One, one district in Texas covered most of the state, you know, from one end of the state to the other, based in Laredo. And it completely avoided the challenge of really putting investment into a depressed area. So we have a lot of these investments that are in places that are generally ritzy places. And the congressman 30 years ago were thinking, well, let's go into some abandoned minefields in Kentucky and, you know, in rural Mississippi and places like that. Those places have gotten very, very little attention. And most of the EB-5 program is, as you said, in these half a million dollar investments. And then in turn, most of them are in big cities. At one point, something like 30% of all EB-5 activity was in Manhattan. Yeah, I think, uh, David, you had written about a case, I mean, there was a coverage of it, where I think it was the Ritz-Carlton in Beverly Hills received EB-5 investments from people who wanted green cards because they, like, gerrymandered it so, you know, they had tiny little connections to some place with a high unemployment. Well, well, I think that was where the Beverly Hillbillies lived. Yeah, yeah, maybe. That could be. <laughs> I'd like to ask George, though, specifically about this gerrymandering thing. You weren't on Capitol Hill when this was initially written, but you were there for 20 plus years. Didn't lawmakers realize it would be gamed this way? There's been reforms, and that's to sort of limit the gerrymandering. We'll talk about that in this recent legislation. But didn't lawmakers realize 20 years ago that this was a problem? I don't think if you just read the statute, it would occur to you that this sort of gerrymandering could or would occur. It was basically the executive branch, Homeland Security, that decided to say, okay, we'll accept as the area of the project, which determines what you look at to see what the unemployment rate is, whatever the particular state tells us it should be. And so they completely gave the states free reign to say what projects were good, what the area of those projects should be. And of course, states, their goal was not preserving the sanctity of the immigration law. Their goal was to bring as much investment into their states as possible. Interesting. So So the states had an incentive to make up these phony baloney areas. Or not make them up, but just to prove whatever was put in front of them. Okay, Yeah. yeah. So David, before we get to what some of the changes were about how this has been made less ridiculously bad by this recent (laughs) legislation, what are some of the scandals? Because you've been covering that for years for us. What is sort of the nature? Maybe are there one or two that are really hilariously over the top? Or maybe is there kind of a theme to how the criminal scandals that infest this program have gone forward? Well, the basic problem with the program is that 
it has two sets of characters, one of which are rich foreigners who aren't particularly interested in getting money from the investment. They're interested in getting the green card, so they don't pay very much attention to what happens to their money. And in many cases, most of the investors are from China. They're sent documents in English that they can't read, and so they sign them. They are not a very, shall we say, hip set of investors. So that's one set of characters. The other set of characters are often recent immigrants themselves in the states who set up these regional centers. The middlemen, basically. The middlemen, exactly. And some of these projects are perfectly okay, and the investors get their money back after a while. Many times it's after four or five years or so, and they get a tiny, tiny return on their investment. It's usually about 1% in many of these cases. But those are the good cases. The bad cases, uh, people lose their money completely. Guy comes along, he's smooth talking. One of them was a ex-Tibetan monk, and uh, they just swallow up the money and, you know, buy fancy cars and uh, pay off some of their own debts and so forth, leaving the uh, alien investors without any return on their investment, without their investment being paid back at all, and in many cases, not getting the green card they want. Now, these things happen all over the country. The program got a deservedly bad reputation for, if not facilitating, at least tolerating these things until the Security and Exchange Commission would come along in a specific case and sue the bad guys and, and typically win. SEC is good at what they do. Yeah, this is a point I think you've made, is that the immigration officials weren't the ones doing whatever policing oh, was necessary. Not. It was actually, like you said, it was the SEC overseeing the investment irregularities that essentially right. revealed the immigration problems. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, and in the case of Vermont, the SEC sued and has, I think, probably restored all of the damages that happened. But in another case, uh, South Dakota, SEC did not do anything. And as a result, the scammers got away with lots of money. I mean, there are stories in South Dakota about sending the money off to a British Virgin Islands paper company of some kind, which in turn sent the money on to Cyprus, all of which got back to a Russian oligarch. Which doesn't sound suspicious at all. No, it doesn't sound suspicious <laughs> yeah. at all. Okay, so George, could you tell us just kind of quickly, what are the high points? What happened recently that fixed some of these problems? And why did it take so long? Because a lot of the people involved, both Democrat and Republican, were actually agreed that some of these changes need to happen. Why didn't they happen before and what went through? Well, first, I should say that this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue of what district you represent. If you're a Democrat and you represent Midtown Manhattan, you're going to have a certain view. If you're a Democrat and represent a poor area in Detroit, which is not getting investments through this program because investors would all rather invest in more key projects in Midtown Manhattan, you have a different view. So it's really based on, to a large extent, on constituencies. I got pulled into the issue by Senator Leahy's office in 2015. He very much, Senator Leahy very much wanted to reform the program, a believer in the program. He wanted to make it succeed, but he believed the abuses needed from his perspective, needed to end. And wasn't, at least in Leahy's case, that an example of, you know, burned once, twice shy in the sense that the the frauds, the scandals that 
David talked about, really the highest profile scandal ever, was in Vermont. And he somehow was involved, connected to that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the scheme. I don't mean that he was involved in yeah. criminality. I mean that these were people that he had relationships or ties with to some degree, and, you know, it kind of burned him. Yeah, I mean, that ski resort was in Vermont. What his involvement was, you know, I don't know, okay. but but the, it was in Vermont. But then my boss at the time, Bob Goodlatte, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, also wanted the program to succeed, was a believer in the program, but felt it went totally astray from what Congress intended in 1990. He wanted to bring it back to congressional intent. Uh, and the two main problems that he saw was first, while Congress gave the executive the ability to raise investment levels at its discretion. In a quarter century, the executive under Republican and Democrat presidents never raised the investment levels. So inflation happened, but the amount just stayed yeah, the same so, that you had to So essentially the, the amount got cut in half right. uh, because of inflation, and the executive never raised the levels. And the goal of getting investments into rural and depressed areas never occurred because of this gerrymandering. And so Mr. Goodlatte's main goals, Mr. Leahy's main goals, uh, John Conyers. In then, the House of Representatives. Yeah, who was yeah. uh, Mr. Goodlatte's counterpart as lead Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, and Chuck Charles Grassley, senator from Iowa, who also was a Republican lead on the Senate Judiciary Committee, all wanted to reform the program. Mr. Grassley was also very concerned about self-dealing in the program. There was an investor, Inspector General report about now DHS Secretary Mayorkas potentially being involved in favoring a politically connected clients. And the inspector general was- This was in the Obama administration, Yeah, when, right? when he was head of uh, citizenship in immigration right. services. Uh, and it was a very unflattering report that came out by the inspector general. Also, Senator Grassley had a lot of very real concerns, strong concerns about many of the Chinese, or some at least, of the Chinese investors being tied to the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army. And uh, there was one famous or infamous case of investor visa money funded by some of these investors from China with potential connections to the Chinese Communist Party, building an FBI office oh, in, in some cities. So they all got together. So just to be clarified for the listeners, we're talking about the lead Republican and lead Democrat on the Judiciary Committee in both the Senate and the House. They call that four corners. And you would kind of wonder, okay, well, if everybody's for this, the top people in both parties, in both chambers of Congress, who stopped it? And you're not in Congress anymore, so you can maybe speak a little more freely than you would have when you were there. Well, let me just point to certain members of the House and Senate who were leaders in their parties or heads of committees or subcommittees and who they represent. Chuck Schumer, senator from New York represents Majority Midtown Manhattan, Senate, right. uh, current Democrat chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, represents Manhattan. And more specifically, Wall Street. His physical district includes Wall Street. Yep. John Cornyn, Dallas, another big... It's Republican senator Yes, in Republican this case. senator. Right. So again, you know, as I said, this is generally not a partisan issue. And in fact, as I mentioned in my piece, I think one of the most inspiring parts of this was the bipartisan cooperation of, as you call, as was called the Four Corners, in trying to just do good government 
and fix and reform this program on a totally bipartisan basis. It took seven years, by which time John Conyers, unfortunately, had passed away. Mr. Goodlatte has retired, but it finally got done in 2022. So, David, could you maybe just tell us again, there's the top few things that were changed. It's harder to gerrymander and what are the minimum amounts where it should go? In other words, why this is still not the full change that we might have. Okay, well, there were three changes that Senators Leahy and Grassley and others worked on, as well as uh, my colleague George, um, and they were these. One is that the minimum investment amount in these pooled investments went up from half a million dollars to $800,000. Now, the Trump administration and the Obama administration before that had wanted to bring it up to 900000 but it was increased 800000 and that's a good thing. It's a good thing in a bad context, but it's a good thing that it's 800000 for the individual um, investors. Right. So that's one part. The other part was the gerrymandering, and the new rules set up by people George has been talking about make it much more difficult to gerrymander. I'm not Sure, they've made it impossible, but they've made it they've made it more difficult, and they've defined it more carefully, and they've removed the states from having anything to do with with those decisions. So, those two things I think are very helpful within a flawed design. I don't think you should be able to buy a green card under any circumstances, but if you're going to buy one, you might as well pay more money than less than less money. Right. The third element, which is really too complicated to get into at the end of this session is the new rules about corruption in this program. It's called the integrity package, and it requires lots of reports and investigations and this, that, and the other, all of which should get some of these individual bad guys out of the business. But I'm pleased by what the senators did, but I'm not advocating that program. I don't think you should be able to buy your way into a green card and eventually into, into citizenship. And if you are going to buy a green card, it seems like, I mean, the way it works, because the, there's investor visa programs in lots of countries, most of them you have to pay the taxpayer, basically. In other words, you have to pay into right, the public right, fees, right. and you charge a lot more. Buying citizenship, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not even sure if like the island of Dominica in the Caribbean does it or not, but it would make sense if they did. you got to pay more than getting a U.S., basically U.S. citizenship. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, if everybody wants this, well, then let's charge some real money for it. Exactly, exactly. So, George, why did this happen finally? Because, like you said, Bob Goodlatte is retired. Congressman Conyers has passed away. Senator Leahy is retiring at the end of this year. Senator Grassley is not retiring, but there's term limits to be a chairman of a or ranking member of a committee, so he's not going to be on judiciary. Why did this actually succeed this time, or do you think, where it hadn't succeeded when all of the players were actually in place before. As you mentioned, the subtitle of my piece was The Agony and the Ecstasy. The ecstasy, I was referring to the enactment of this legislation. The agony was the time and time again, we were brought into leadership-sponsored negotiations with other members of Congress, with industry representatives, and how many hours of my life I'd lost to this, I'd hate to add up. But on a number of occasions, we reached very delicate compromises in which each party had to give up a lot. It was very difficult for each party, but 
but we thought the compromises did make fundamental improvements to the program. And in all those cases, at the last minute, the compromises fell apart. Senator Grassley has stated that the reason this has happened was because of the intervention of big money New York uh, real estate interests. I'll just leave it at that. That's what Senator Grassley said. But one of their main weapons was that, as I said, the regional center program is a pilot program. It continually had to be reauthorized by Congress. And the way they did it was it ended at the end of the fiscal year. So every year or two when it expired and the big omnibus spending bill was coming through to fund the government for the next year, you know, they just threw this reauthorization on. And so industry knew that they never really had to negotiate in good faith or seriously with us because if nothing happened in the negotiations, Congress is going to renew the program just the way they liked it. And so we, for a while, advocated splitting off the reauthorizations from the end of the fiscal year. So if a reauthorization ends in June, Congress would actually have to pass Ah. separate legislation to reauthorize it. Rather than just fold it into the big spending bill. Yeah. And industry knew that, of course, the implications too, and we were never able to convince leadership to do that. But last year, after I had left the Hill, Mr. Goodlatte's office and Senator Grassley, Senator Leahy were able to get that bifurcation into the law. And because of that, when the program expired, there was no must pass spending bill. Right. And for eight months, it it, it didn't exist. The regional program didn't exist. Regional center program didn't exist. And industry was getting more and more worried, both because is this program going to come back? And also because are we going to get sued by all our investors who now they don't have access? They can't get a green card. And so through those negotiations, incentivized or catalyzed by that, a deal was reached and it was enacted. uh, In March, uh, right? In March, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so is the program permanent now or is it? I think it's extended till 2027. So it will have to be reauthorized then, but not every year. Yeah. So David, just as a last thing here, I mean, I'm with you that this program shouldn't exist at all. We should just abolish it. But if it does exist, are there further changes that you think would be useful for Congress to make beyond the ones that just last month were enacted? I'm not sure about that. The changes, as we've discussed, make sense in and of themselves. They may not be adequate. My sense is that this program is going to be just a shadow of its former self. It used to used to create 10,000 visas a year, but the new rules are such that while it may not be a very uh, commendable program, it may also be a very small program. Interesting. So uh, we'll see. It, the industry has taken a shellacking in being out of business for eight months. The new rules are not as attractive as the old ones to investors, and uh, we may find that uh, this program limps along for a number of years without uh, causing too much damage. Interesting. There's one immigration program that may actually, you know, kind of turn into a pumpkin at some point and genuinely disappear. Yeah, let's hope so. Yes. Thank you, David, David North, and thank you, George Fishman, for talking about the EB-5 program. It sounds kind of, you know, sort of wonky, I guess, and there's a lot of wonkiness to it, but this broke out into the news over and over and over again. Just something we a name we forgot to mention is Jared Kushner, because one of his projects also had EB-5 money, and immediately that made it catnip for a lot of the media to write about, but to write about the whole program, even just beyond the Kushner family's use of it. 
So uh, as wonky as this sounds, this is something that's relevant to the news. And even limping along in its smaller form probably will continue to get some attention. So we will uh, keep our eye on it. David, I know you will keep an eye out for further scandals and outrages, which probably this program will generate. And George's report on this published a couple of weeks ago is called Reforming the EB-5 Investor Green Card Program, The Agony and the Ecstasy. Although the way he described it, it probably should be the ecstasy and the agony, maybe. I don't know. Um, It's online at our website, cis.org. And as is all of our other work, thank you guys for coming on. And hopefully we will not be coming on again to talk about this program, but we'll see. Mark, thank, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. We pre-recorded this episode because this week we are at the border in South Texas, and we'll tell you more about that next week. In the meantime, feel free to comment or rate this podcast at the usual podcast platforms, if yours allows that. Or just contact me directly at msk at cis.org with any suggestions or complaints or uh, compliments. Until next week, this is Mark Krikorian. 